Welcome into the Duck Territory podcast. I am Matt Prem. Eric Scopel's across the way. How are we doing, guys? Uh, lots to get to in this one. Um, we've got Sabrina Inescu's WNBA decision. We've got... Uh, t- we're recording this the day of the national championship for the men. So we've already seen one way too early top 25 ranking, which has Oregon in the top 10. Crazy. Which will justify or debunk that one. Uh, and let's start right off with football. There was a scrimmage up in Portland. We missed uh, the final four to cover that uh, for men's side. It was myself, Eric, Kevin Wade, uh, Melissa McBaron, one of our new interns, and then also Ethan Weiss, uh, one of our regular interns. Uh, we were up at Hillsboro Stadium in the Portland, Oregon area, checking out Oregon's, what was that, the eighth spring practice of the 2019 spring period and uh, third practice of the week at the time, uh, second padded practice, first scrimmage. I don't know what to what was a bigger takeaway? Uh, Oregon's offense, for the most part, struggling, uh, or Oregon's defense looking just incredibly good, uh, especially in the second half of that scrimmage. Yeah, and I think we should say it's it's hard to really we should engage too much and take too much for away from it. Probably just because this is the first scrimmage of the spring, and there's going to be at least another scrimmage in the spring, and then two or three scrimmages in the fall before they even play a game, but. It was clear. I think. I think they ran about ninety plays. Is what is what we tallied out. And, and Kevin did a great job of keeping stats for those that right. were able to attend. That's on the site if you want to check it out. And I think it's titled Oregon's uh, Portland Scrimmage Play Log. Um, but so that's some good information there. So about ninety plays are run, and I think only three touchdowns by the Oregon offense yeah. during that span. Not particularly optimistic. Not particularly a positive start for them. I would say. And I think um, you know it was in the passing game where they had issues, and that's not a new problem. You know, Justin, not a surprise. Justin Herbert, I think, at one point had nine or ten incompletions in a row, and some of those were drops. Some of those were really good coverage. Some of that was he was being pressured, and I think we – I thought Lamar Winston, Kayvon Thibodeau, DJ Johnson, uh, Adrian Jackson, all those guys off the edge really made things difficult for that first-team offense. It seemed like Herbert was running around a lot trying to make things happen, and, and those plays didn't work out more times than not. So I think – Offensive line probably didn't have its best scrimmage. I think the receivers dropped a handful of balls probably didn't have their best scrimmage. I thought Justin Herbert didn't have his best scrimmage. I thought Tyler Shuck probably looked somewhat sharper. Of course, he's going to get second-team defenders rather than first-team defenders in that scrimmage. But, uh, yeah, the offense, not not that impressive of a day, but like we said, I thought the defense, some really impressive stuff there. And uh, Lamar Winston in particular, it just seemed like he was always in the backfield making things happen, especially early on in that scrimmage when he was when he was getting the bulk of the run. So I think, again, I don't know what you take away from it, but it certainly felt like if, if you were scoring it, it was like the Oregon defense gets a 10 out of 10 and the Oregon offense is like a 6 out of 10, something along those lines. I was really impressed. I mean, Grant, look, this is spring football, and this is a scrimmage. This isn't even the spring game. Right. And so, you know, I, I wasn't taking into consideration, like, okay, what, what play is Oregon running in this situation? Like, sure. I, I guarantee you... Uh, almost all of Oregon's offensive plays were scripted, whether they were scripted for their benefit or they were scripted uh, secondary benefits to help the defense in a certain situation, a third and two, you know, what and, and be a run play. How is Oregon's defense going to 
respond to that. So, you know, if you, if you went or if you were concerned about the play calling, like, throw all that out the window. Sure. Oh, yeah, I didn't even dawn on me to be concerned about play calling. Like, like that's so far away from, from where Oregon's at right now uh, in terms of what they want to get accomplished. You know, this was situational work. This was scripted plays. Uh, you know, hey, we want to see what we look like with, with nine straight run plays. We want – and – you know, different situations, different downs. We saw them, you know, they'd get four yards and then they would, on first down, and then they would move the ball yeah. three more yards forward to get a second and three situation. We should mention that they were probably the first 25 plays. Literally, it was like we're all at midfield and if they gained 10 yards, they brought back 10 yards. So they're right. just not scoring touchdowns during that run. It was pretty much impossible unless they had an explosion play to score. And so, you know, I, I wasn't really too worried about that. I wasn't even paying attention to, you know, play, you know, selection and, and whatnot and just more of execution type stuff. But I was really impressed about where Oregon's defense was coming from with pressures, kind of the way they attacked, the way they looked. The defensive line, the front seven in particular, was, yeah, was, exactly. was really good. Uh, and I don't know if I was necessarily expecting that this soon just because, um, they lost Justin Hollins, they lost Jalen Jokes, uh, they lost Kolana Ebalu, and then they lost Ugo Amati. You know, four starters from a defense, and there's a scheme change, yeah. and you're, you're dealing with lack of depth at, at certain positions. This just wasn't a first team defense domination. This was both units, um, you know, top to bottom, especially in the front seven on both groups, was pretty impressive to watch. And it, and it just kind of dawns on me here that maybe the big winner of this scrimmage, and again, we're not trying to take too much away in the big picture, but maybe the big winner for this is Andy Avalos because yeah. the defense, they've, they've only had eight practices now to install it, and they looked, looked like they've been running it for a couple of years. They looked really, and again, we don't know what the offensive play calls were. Maybe they were created in, or chosen in terms of benefiting the defense, but I, I thought the defense, they look like a defense that can go out there and compete, and, and they especially have those, again, those jumbo athletes on that front seven here I think people that are, are going to be, they already are excited about Kayvon Thibodeau and DJ Johnson, and they should be because I thought we saw, uh, especially kind of in the mid to late part of that scrimmage, those guys really asserted themselves. The scrimmage ended with Thibodeau intercepting a Tyler Shuck pass. He deflected the line of scrimmage, caught it, and then and then ran, and I think ended up being tackled. But that was how the scrimmage ended. I think it was the right way to end it just because the strength in that, that scrimmage was the defense. That I think that was the first turnover and only yeah. turnover of the scrimmage too. So for the most part, one of the positives, I guess, for the offense was they didn't commit a lot of turnovers. But, again, one explosion play, not a lot of success offensively, especially through the air. Uh, one other thing we should note is Oregon's starting running back, C.J. Verdell, wasn't really a, uh, a regular in the scrimmage. He participated, but he wasn't a regular. Um, and that dealt with he's, – he's dealt with a hamstring issue for pretty much all of spring. And so, you know, that – Right away, it hurts Oregon's offense from being production, you know, productive because their top running back isn't playing, really. Uh, but I was really impressed with uh, Cyrus Avila-Kio and also Darian Felix. Both guys, Darian Felix had, there was some, we had some questions of whether it counted or not, but he still made the play because of a, a potential sack with Justin Herbert. It looked like you and I both agreed that Lamar that, Winston tagged him. Yeah, that that play should not have counted because Lamar Winston tagged Justin Herbert for a sack. Uh, Kevin Wade, who was keeping stats, uh, he then, he said it, it did count because of what Herbert and Winston both said in, in post-scrimmage right. interviews, uh, sounding like the coaching staff allowed the, the play to, to continue to go on, which ended up ending with uh, Darian Felix' 41-yard touchdown pass uh, from Herbert. Felix and Cyrus both looked, I thought, 
pretty good. And, and in particular, if you were to pick one of the two, in my opinion, who stood out even more, I, I would say Cyrus would be Lakeo. He, yeah. he showed a lot. Yeah, he showed the he was able he had some success running the football, and then he also had quite a bit of success catching the ball, which isn't something I think we knew he could do that based on his high school. He was a very versatile player in high school, but we didn't really. I'm not sure how many. I'd have to go back and look. I did not have a lot of pass receptions this no. last year. I was almost entirely just a goal line running back. We saw him do a little bit more, and I agree with that. Darren Felix, especially out catching the football looked like a, a valuable asset. And I guess two other guys that are new players that we should mention offensively, I thought Jawan Johnson had some nice moments. I think he also had a couple drops, but had some really nice moments uh, along the sideline catching passes and, and just standing out physically. He is so much bigger, larger than Oregon really has had at wide receiver in quite some time. And then I thought Micah Pittman made a couple nice catches too. Uh, a, a one, I think both of them had a, a seven-on-seven touchdown reception. Um, but both those guys I thought also did a couple of nice things. A couple guys offensively we should know played. At a high level, and it's not like it's not like it's not like everyone played at a poor level. It's no. not like it was a scrimmage where you're like, oh man, these guys are bad. But it, certainly there were there were other players that made more plays than others. It, it felt like. I think it's safe to say also that uh, you know Mario Cristobal was asked about Jawan Johnson being the number one receiver, um, and he said they would they would never throw a pl- that kind of title onto a newcomer right away without the guy having to prove it and earn that job. Um, I will say this though, the staff is giving every chance for Juwan Johnson and Micah Pittman, uh, to work their way into the first yeah. unit because they've instantly, both the guys arrived midweek this week and, or last week yeah. and both guys first, first day of practice for them, uh, Pittman's was a Tuesday and then Johnson's was a Thursday. Both guys, their first practice, they took reps with the second team offense. And they are getting the opportunities to make the plays. And look, I, it's, to, it, maybe it's, this is a super hot take. Uh, super hot take, but, cause it's spring and they've, they've, you know, Pittman's had three practices and Johnson's had two. And we've already said that we don't take too much away from the yes. practices. <laughs> uh, but I, I just think at some point during the year, there will be a change in the starting lineup at receiver, and Pittman and Johnson will be included in that group of new starters at the receiver position. Who they replace, yeah. who stays with them, I don't know. Yeah, and we should mention Pittman uh, has worked a little bit in the slot, but also worked a little bit outside, so he's a, he's a candidate to play either spot. And Johnson is, I think, entirely an outside receiver. I don't yeah. expect you'll see him line up anywhere else, but... I wouldn't disagree with you on that. I, I do think there were some nice plays made by other wide receivers, but those were the two guys. I think if you were to ask pretty much anybody that watched who stood out at receiver, maybe it's just a novelty. These are the, these are their first time seeing these players play, but those guys did stand out. It seemed like they made some nice plays. Johnson again, in particular, just physically, you watch him and he stands out. We should mention guys like Brian Addison didn't play. I don't think Josh Legato took part. JJ Tucker and Isaiah Crocker. So they were down three or four of their top. Uh, three or four scholarship wide receivers didn't play. So there's a lot of opportunity for those guys. But again, I think they made the most of those opportunities for sure. The Ducks will uh, now have practice again this week, Tuesday, April 9th. And then they'll have practice on the 11th, which is a Thursday. And then another Saturday practice, uh, which will be, I believe, the 13th, uh, is when Oregon will, will be back out on the football field. And then next week, uh, they will wrap things up. They have four practices next week. Uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and then the spring game is on the 20th. Um, we will not have media availability on the 19th day leading up to the spring game. I think that's uh, going to be very, very similar to like a pre-game day practice type through. 
situation of, you know, getting everyone ready for that game. And then obviously the spring game. So uh, lots to get to. And look, two weeks away, we're, we're away from the spring game. And, you know, recruiting is going to yeah. start really ramping up because uh, the Ducks are expecting a huge group of unofficial potential official visitors for the spring game. And, you know, it, it's it's been a couple of weeks or a month or so since a, a verbal commitment for the Ducks for the 2020 class. Uh, and it's not going to surprise me one bit if a month from now there's maybe three, four, five, six, seven more verbal commitments for that class. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 traditionally, at least the last couple of years, I think it's been four to six commitments each of the last two years on from the spring game, whether that took place on the spring game or in the week after. So it does seem like the trend is uh, a lot of things take place around that spring game. Uh, let's shift now to women's basketball and you wrote a column um, about how, for about a 30-minute period, <laughs> there was just total chaos. And we shared that together. We should mention yes. we, we were in the car together, and it, we, were, we were leaving Top Golf in Portland after this week. We went and had a good time playing some Top Golf. Uh, I joke that if this if this news is going to hit, and all of us are in the car right now. Literally, we were driving in the car, two of us down to Eugene. Along from Hillsborough to Port- Eugene. Yeah, from to Eugene, and it... I, I, we hate this rule. We should, we should probably talk about this just briefly. Serena Eskew had 24 hours after her last basketball game to make it. Probably the biggest decision she's made in her life to this point. That just seems so wrong. And I understand the WNBA, their draft is this Wednesday, and, and they have to be quick in making these decisions. But it's just like, come on, give her a break. But anyway, she had to decide by 6 p.m. on Saturday. And it, 6, 6 p.m. came and went. And we're both, well, I'm checking my phone. I won't say you're checking your phone because you were driving. Yes, I was not. You should not be checking your phone. I was checking my phone. Ethan in the back was checking our phone. Kevin was checking his phone and, and, and texting us about what was going on. There was no news until about 6.12, and then a publication that neither of us had ever heard, heard of. of reports she's going pro. And so there's about 15 minutes of just utter like chaos of like, oh, my gosh. Is, We're deciding, should we report on it? This is only one source. We don't know the source. We decide not to. And we made a good decision. Yeah. Because about 12, 15 minutes after that came out, Sabrina on the Players' Tribune uh, announced that she was returning. Yes. So an absolute roller coaster ride <laughs> uh, over a 15-20 minute period of what she's going to do. Oh my God, she's leaving. Oh my God, she's staying. What the heck just happened? How does this happen? Uh, pretty pretty eventful for sure. I think there's there's two things here. Um, a, it's just significant. And look, it's one season, but I'm going to call it. It's program changing for mm-hmm. for the women mm-hmm. uh, for her coming back. Uh, Bigger picture, I think this is a direct shot at the WNBA of I am the number one pick for the draft, and it's better for me to return to school. That does not say a lot about your product if you're the WNBA, if your best prospect for that upcoming draft says it's better for me to come back to school and win a college championship and, you know, better this program than it is for me to go get money now because it's not life-changing money. Nothing it's, – it's it's not equal to what the men have. And, look, this is a, a, a much bigger discussion, sports or not, yeah. uh, of equal pay rights with – you know, compared from men to women. Um, and the WNBA, they need – I think – you know, John Canzano wrote a great column, and one of the things he mentioned was, you know, go back – and look at some of the best college basketball stars uh, at, at, the, at the women level and look at what happens when they go professional. 
they just disappear. You don't hear about them. Yeah. Um, and so as crazy as it sounds, you know, I, I think you could argue long-term perspective-wise, Sabrina's financial future is impacted more by returning to Oregon for a fourth year and making more connections with the university and the alumni of Oregon than going pro right away. And continuing to be in the national spotlight in yeah. games and, and, and posting triple doubles where it continues to add to a record and working towards, I wrote about this in the column, she has a chance, and actually I would say I won't say a chance, she will if she stays healthy and produces like she has. She will become the first men's or women's player to have 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 1,000 assists. Only four men and four women have ever had 1,000 assists before. So the list was... I was looking through it, and I was like, this is going to take a while. And I was like, oh, wait, there's only been like eight people who have ever had 1,000 assists in a, in a college basketball career. She's going to become one of them. She's about 250 short. She had over 300 this year, rebounding very similar numbers. Her rebounding assist numbers are really close. So she's going to get over that, that number. And I think having a national story of her continuing to work towards this, of her being the focal point of women's college basketball for another year, I agree. I think it sets her up. It builds her Again, brand, her personal brand, her personal profile. So when she does go into the WNBA in another year, she's going to have a lot more, I think, opportunities to market herself to corporations like Nike, yep. which I'm sure would be intrigued with signing <laughs> just a little bit. somebody just down the road who's already had so much, uh, I guess, an impact in this community and in for this sport. I think, and I think it's a growing market. You know, women's college basketball is growing. Maybe that's just us from an Oregon perspective, but I do think the interest seems to be growing for women's basketball. And I think UNESCO has a great chance here to Hopefully come back, maybe win a national championship, be a, you know, a focal point in kind of this next group of stars coming into the WNBA because she is certainly, uh, you know, an extremely fun player to follow and I think a really good role model for young athletes. Uh, and, and you probably are even seeing this. I think one of the things that was cool about the Players Tribune thing was uh, it, talk, it opened up talking about how Kobe Bryant had just done a little feature yeah. on UNESCO. I don't think that happens if Kobe Bryant's two daughters, who are both like six to 12 years old, aren't big fans of Sabrina and look up to her. uh, And that provides her this opportunity for all these young little girls looking up for her. She's already becoming that. So, again, cool and very exciting for Oregon to have a player of this magnitude back. Also cool and exciting that Justin Herbert and Sabrina Nescu, two players that could have been drafted very, very high, potentially both number one draft picks in their predictive sport, coming back to Oregon. Uh, Oregon's football, women's basketball, and basketball teams next year could all be really, really, really good. Now, from an on-court perspective – this is game-changing. I call it game-changing, program-changing yeah. for Oregon just because, look, you now have the best player on the court for a second straight year. You have – you obviously lose Maite Carzola. You, you lose Audie Gildan. Um, but everyone else is back from, from a Final Four team. You add three really good uh, international prospects that are going to help. Uh, Naria Sobley is also going to be healthy, that's gonna be big. and that's huge too. And and you know, look, the word about her was you know, she could have been a starter mm-hmm. this this final four year if it wasn't for a knee injury that hurt, you know, got her hurt and knocked her out for the year. So you know, I don't know who you would take off the court, yeah. but she was that good I where mean, she was starter quality. There were rumblings that she was going to be a better player as a freshman than Sasha was. Yeah. yeah, and that was kind of so there was rumblings that she's going to be this big time player. Her getting hurt. At, you know, right, right before she's about to arrive uh, in Eugene for, for fall, that was a gut punch for the program. Impressive they're able to go to the Final Four. What she could provide, and you look at the way they lost to Baylor, yeah. gosh, they would have loved to have had another 6'4", six, 6'5", six, post player, to at least just make things difficult for Lauren Cox and Kalani Brown. We haven't really talked about that game, but Baylor won that game purely inside, just pounding it down on the rock because 
Ruthie Huber, I thought, did pretty... She worked her butt off out there, and she, yep. she just was in a tough spot. She's giving up a lot of weight, a lot of height to those players, and uh, they just need another body like that. A player like Salbali could have been a difference maker in that game. Either way, next year, I think that provides uh, some more depth up front when you play, again, these big front lines. You need those type of players, and Oregon faced back-to-back games, a six foot seven, top five WNBA draft pick, and that's not easy to do, and I think that was probably, to me, kind of a glaring thing you come away from. They need to find a way to, to match up with these bigger teams because obviously they're able to be successful offensively. They shot the ball really well. Um, I thought the they matched up pretty game. well with what Baylor did. I mean, it, yeah, we, yeah, up until the last couple minutes, they couldn't yeah. get baskets. I mean, I, they were right there with them. They were, sure. and I, I think it, it was more of they just ran. They didn't have enough bodies. It wasn't that they didn't, they didn't have the personnel to beat them. They just. The, the thing with Baylor all year was they just grind you down and, mm-hmm. and they wear you out and then they pull away late. And that's exactly what happened. They just didn't have enough bodies. I mean, you, you throw in, uh, Sobley into the picture. Maybe they, you know, maybe that extra person in the rotation could help. Maybe yeah. Taylor Chavez, you know, being able to play a little bit helps the guard position. Um, but regardless, this team's going to be preseason number one yeah. next year. I, I think, I think it's very safe to say that, that they will be preseason number one. And it wouldn't surprise me if they basically stay there from start to finish. You know, I, it's, it's crazy, but I kind of wonder is the expectation. I mean, maybe we don't know because of the non-conference schedule. Maybe they just load up on an insane amount of teams in the non-con. Um, the, the top 25 came out for the coaches poll or, or yeah, USA Today's coaches poll for women and, um, for the end of the season, and five teams in the Pac-12 were in the top 15. Three were in the top 10. Um, so maybe they drop a game or two in the in conference. But as crazy as it sounds, I I think a a 30 a 34 and 0 run could be possible before the NCAA tournament. You know, this team might not lose all year. Yeah, and one thing that adds to that, and that I wrote in the story is. All of the top competitors, every single team in the Elite Eight this year, that with, along with Oregon, had it first round, or has a player projected to go in the first round. Every team from the Final Four has at least four players expected to go in this WNBA draft. So basically, everybody else is losing all of their top players. I shouldn't say all of their top players, but everybody else from the Elite Eight this year losing a boatload of talent. Oregon, again, might take Azorla, Adi Golden, really talented players, but... For the most part, Oregon's core is back. Their top four scores are back. I think that votes very, very well. And like you said, they were really dominant this year in conference play. And I, I had stats ready before Ruthie Heber got injured, injured, and they didn't. They looked like they were on pace to go 18 and 0 in conference play, and they were going to have some historic levels of dominance in that in that conference run. I had stats already, and unfortunately, Heber goes down. They end up losing two games in the end of conference play, but. There's a chance I agree that next year's team is a one loss, no loss, two loss team going into the NCAA yeah. tournament, and it could be a special, special season. Uh, now we haven't seen a ton yet, and we will say this real quick: for the women, there hasn't been one way too early top twenty-five released yet. Um, I checked this morning; I hadn't seen anything. We do know Richard Deitch of the Athletic; he does one, but his comes out usually a week after. The women's season is over with, but he's already come out and said after the Sabrina news, Oregon will be number one uh, in his ranking. So we'll keep tabs on that. As for the men's side, we've already seen one way too early top 25 uh, list come out today. Yeah. It was by the Sporting News. Um, they, for whatever reason, did it before the national championship. Probably get a, a jump on. Probably. The clicks. We're talking about it. Yeah. And if they came out with everybody else's, we might not have. 
And they currently have Oregon as not only a top 10 team, but as the sixth best team uh, going into the 2019-2020 basketball season. They are only one of two teams from the Pac-12 ranked in the top 25. Arizona also made the cut, which I wouldn't put them in the top 25 if it was me. A lot of mystery there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of mystery there. Uh, their top five of the, of the sporting news is Virginia 1, Michigan State 2, Kentucky 3, Michigan 4, Duke 5, and then there's Oregon at 6, Marquette is at 7, Tennessee is at 8, Purdue is at 9, Auburn is at 10. Um, certainly going to be an interesting year and off, we should say off season for Oregon because this doesn't take into account the potential of Lewis King being gone. He is not, King is not included in the key players coming back, but he is included in the key decision section of uh, not being a projected as a first round draft pick uh, and has a chance to be a star with a year of maturity. I don't know necessarily what maturity has to do with that. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a weird comment. That's a weird comment. Um, but with or without King, are you buying that this team is a top six team in the country? Uh, with King, I, I don't think that floors me. If King comes back, I think you look at them, and I don't think anybody would disagree that Oregon was playing as a top ten team in the NCAA tournament. I think Oregon was one of the ten best teams playing in the Sweet 16 round. I think, honestly, I, I think there are teams that played in the Elite Eight round Oregon could have beaten with the way they were playing, and, and King was a big part of that. So if King comes back and you are, you're now melding in a really good recruiting class, I think C.J. Walker is going to be someone that's going to be instantly kind of a big part of it. Chris Duarte, top junior college player, also going to be someone that steps into a big role kind of right away. Chandler Lawson will kind of see, and then Isaac Johnson is also signed tonight. He's not going to roll for a couple of years going on a mission. But a good recruiting class, a, a ton coming back, which has not been the case the last couple of seasons. I mean, that's really what has bit these teams. Yeah. There's, there's, there hasn't been a whole lot of experience of these guys playing together. Last year, it was two or three guys. The year before that, it was a similar number. So uh, you, you, they just haven't had that much cohesion. This season, this next season, they probably should. And if, if King comes back, again, I think they have a talented enough roster to make a run at it. I think top six doesn't feel crazy. If King leaves, I think, honestly, you probably drop him down a notch, maybe outside of the top ten, just because he is clearly going to be, along with Pritchard, the top perimeter scorer. You take him out of there, I don't know who that clear second perimeter scorer is. Is it a Will Richardson who, who at time showed he could do it? Is it Duarte who comes in ready to do it? Uh, could Victor Bailey see a big jump? But I just think King is kind of such a sure thing offensively for them. Him not being with the team would take them back a step offensively, I think. I would argue if, if King comes back and Oregon sees no other defections besides Bull Bull, Paul White, and Ehab Amin, and they add the recruiting class that they have, yeah. I would argue they, they could be a top three team in, in the country. I mean, think about it. They, they're a Sweet 16 team. They bring four starters back. Yeah. They add a top 12 recruiting class in the country. Right now, yeah. They have the number one junior college prospect in the country coming in. They have a borderline five-star in C.J. Walker coming in. They have the Pac-12's Defensive Player of the Year frontrunner next year in Kenny Wooten. They probably have a top three candidate for Pac-12 Player of the Year in Peyton Pritchard coming back as a senior. And like you said, they have a ton of experience. They have a ton of talent, and they're even adding more talent into the picture. I could get I could under I could get on with a team being 
ranked top and, three, top five in and, the country. And they could cement that status if they add a couple guys. Yeah. So we're not even talking about the Paul Anthony, Cassius but, Stanley. Yeah, we're talking about them losing King possibly. What if they go out and they keep King and then they add a couple guys? Or even if they lose King and they add a couple of these top-tier recruits. So, yeah, things could get interesting from that perspective. It's going to be a season, again, where they're going to go into the year with really high expectations. They wanted the season with pretty high expectations as well. Bull Bull went down and then it totally changed things. But... It'll be very interesting to see how this group handles it because the run they went on this year kind of went, kind of took place when everybody kind of forgot about them and kind of everybody kind of slept on them and kind of went, oh, the year's over. Forget about this team. Let's move our attention to something else. That was when they kind of thrived. Can this be a group that has success when the attention is on them and that people project them as a top 10 team? Something we kind of don't know yet. And look, if they don't have King coming back, I still think this is a top 12-ish team in the country. Yeah, it's here. Yeah. Um, just because the same things I said. They have a recruiting class coming in that's really good. And on top of that, look, as long as the recruiting class is intact or improves and Oregon has Kenny Wooten and has Peyton Pritchard coming back, Oregon will find a way to mesh the other pieces. And, you know, they could lose King and they could lose another guy. And I still would say, yeah, they're a top 15, they're a top 10, you know, kind of that 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 position. You know, I I could argue they they could fall on that losing King and somebody else like yeah. if like if a Victor Bailey left or if a Will Richardson left or a Miles Norris left you know I I, I wouldn't have a, a a problem saying that Oregon is in that position because look their two most their two most talented players are you know super experienced and they've got NBA potential in Kenny Wooten they've got NBA potential in CJ Walker uh, Peyton Pritchard could could play his way into you know getting some kind of an NBA invite as a senior. I don't think that's out of the realm. Um, you know, and they've got a Pac-12 player of the year candidate in Peyton Pritchard. So this team's going to have questions. They're going to have holes to fill. But look, believe it or not, you know, I was told internally at the program that this year was the setup year. The coming year, 2019-2020, is going to be their big year, is what the staff felt like privately. It was when they're going to make that next step, getting back, Potentially into the final four. Heck, they almost made it this year. That's crazy. As it it crazy as it sounds, and I don't know if they would have beaten Purdue had they gotten by Virginia, which, by the way, very close against Virginia. Yeah. And Virginia's gotten extremely lucky to make the championship game. But uh, yeah, they, they're certainly on a run this year, and I think you can. There's no reason to be anything but optimistic going into next year. I, I don't think, unless there is like a, a rash of defections and something crazy happens. It just seems hard to believe that that would take place after they made such a magical run. And again. Uh, a run that will be remembered and revered for a very long time, I think, for, for Oregon fans and for people around that program. Lots to, to monitor. We're going to, you know, like we, like we said for beginning of the year uh, or beginning of this discussion on Oregon men's basketball, is there's still some moving pieces out there. We're waiting on what Lewis King does. Mm-hmm. We're waiting on if there's other pieces that could defect out of the program to go somewhere else. Uh, we don't, you know, I'm not saying that, there's guys deciding. It just could happen. It, it could happen. It's I mean, happened it, it, every year for, it's college basketball yeah. now. Uh, there's always transfers, so we're waiting to see who finalizes that they're coming back. Uh, and then on top of that, we're waiting on you know a guy like Cole Anthony, who's a, a five-star number three player in the country um, that could potentially sign with Oregon here in the next couple of weeks. We're waiting on Cassius Stanley, who's considered you know one of the most athletic players to ever come out of Southern California in the last 30 years, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, he's a six-foot-five guard out of Sierra Canyon High School. Uh, we're also waiting 
on grad transfers. You know, there we spoke with TJ Holyfield from Stephen F. Austin, a guy that Oregon's looking at. You know, Oregon was making an in-home visit with him 48 hours after they lost to Virginia. Uh, so, you know, Oregon's got pieces. They've got, you know, they've got some things moving for the 2019 spring class. So, you know, we won't have a clear idea yet of where they are until, right. until probably about a, a month or so. Uh, but until then, stick with us for Oregon football coverage. The spring game's coming up. Recruiting coverage is, is going to heat up. Uh, we're tracking Oregon women's, Oregon men and women basketball. Uh, and if you haven't signed up for Duck Territory, give us a try. We have a $1 trial period for one month. You get Duck Territory for $1 for one month. Uh, now's the perfect time to try that. Uh, until we talk to you next week, for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening to the Duck Territory Podcast. Adios.